Welcome back to another edition of Drop the Mitts Hockey Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Primetime Production. Today, we have one of my favorite people in the entire game of hockey. Um, grew up watching him, um, listening to all his, you know, unbelievable takes, his analysis. Um, longtime NHL analyst and two-time Stanley Cup winning um, analyst, Pierre Maguire. Pierre, how are you? I'm excellent, Chris. Nice to visit with you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, it's it's an honor. And like I said, I grew up watching and you're, you know, between the glass, t- you know, just an absolute legend. It's a staple of my childhood. Um, well, watching I, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old yet, but I'm getting there. <laughs> we, we uh, a lot has happened. I mean, obviously, um, I got to thank Jimmy Murphy as well um, for kind of, put you know, for putting us in contact with each other. And um another unbelievable guy. I know you and him are close. You guys have a unbelievable podcast going. Um, so got to thank him, but we've had some, a ton of news over the past couple days that have happened. Um, yes. most recently this, this trade that happened last night kind of felt like out of nowhere. Um, Philadelphia sends Cutter Gauthier to the Anaheim Ducks and the Anaheim Ducks send to Philly, Jamie Drysdale in a 2025 second round pick. It feels like this kind of came out of nowhere. What were your thoughts when you uh, when you first heard the news? I thought it was April Fool's early, to be honest. Right. I really did. Uh, just based on what Cutter had done, obviously, at the World Junior this year, what he had done at the World Junior last year, what he's done at Boston College through two years, especially this year, the numbers are, are obviously speaking for themselves. Jamie's a very good player. I'm going to tell you right now, I know Jamie Drysdale very well as a player because my son grew up playing against him. He was playing up in Toronto. My son was playing for Mid-Fairfield in Connecticut, and they also played in the Brick Tournament against one another. So I've been watching him for a long time. Uh, Tremendous talent, but he's also had a ton of injuries, and it's early on in his career right now. Um, So I was really surprised. If you look at Philadelphia's organizational needs and you look at uh, Anaheim's organizational needs, you know, you see it and you're going, okay, I kind of get why Anaheim would do that because they're stockpiled defense, Chris. But uh, if you look at why Philly would do that, there's more to this story than I think is coming out. That's all I want to say. Cause I, the compensation is nice going back to Philadelphia, but I don't think it's as much as it could have been. Right, yeah, and it just seems like, um, you know, we heard from Danny Briere, we heard from um, – and just in in his the way that he kind of talked about it, it just feels like this has been kind of ongoing for a while now. Um, this isn't something that just all of a sudden popped up. And you said it best. I mean, I feel like this is a really good return for both teams. I mean, it's just a deal that makes sense for both. Um, Jamie Drysdale is a, you mentioned one of those guys. I feel like he just hasn't come up, you know, come into his own yet. Um, but still, as the sixth overall pick, it, it's something that Philly needs is that puck-moving defenseman. Um, and then obviously for Anaheim, Cutter Gauthier, what he's done in the NCAA and the World Juniors, which we'll get into in a little bit because I know we're both you know World Junior junkies. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, it, this trade, I, I thought like I thought it was an April Fool's joke too because I was like, there's no way it just came out of nowhere. Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to uh, trust everybody that's been involved in terms of how they've put their spin out there. I'm talking about the management people from Philadelphia and say, okay, they're telling the truth. Uh, I also know Pat Verbeek. I coach him, the general manager out in Anaheim, and uh, he's a no-nonsense guy. So I believe what he's saying as well. I think they've probably had discussion for a while. Um, obviously, the people from Philadelphia put it out there, Chris, that 
Keith Jones and, and Danny Breer flew over to Sweden to try to meet with Cutter Goche. Uh, Goche wouldn't see them according to them. And so I'm going to trust them and believe them. And, and I have every reason to trust and believe them. I worked with Keith Jones for 16 years. So right. I, I, I have every reason to believe them. Uh, but I also know that he, they went over and met him, but he wouldn't meet with them. So they had to do something because clearly something was not right. If, if a young player at 19 is telling an organization doesn't want to go there, 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 something had to happen along the way. We just don't know what that something is right now. Right, for sure. Now, do you think one one team won this trade over the other? Too early to tell. What I would just say is I don't think the compensation going to Philadelphia will be enough long-term because players like Goche, big power forward type players, I'm not saying he's going to be a physical wrecking machine because he's not. that's not his thing. He's speed. He's a shooter. He's a dominant puck possession player. He's really good. And you look at – just think about this – Mason McTavish, Trevor Zegers, Leo Carlson. Uh, you know, you start looking at the young pieces they have up front. Now you're starting to get to, wow, these guys could be really good for a seven to ten year window um, because they do have unbelievable depth on defense and they've got great depth and goal. So it's going to be interesting to see. They just can't score. Right. Um, for Philadelphia, they're still well into their – and they're way ahead of schedule, by the way. So hats off to John Tortorelli. Right. They're way ahead of schedule. But do I think this is fair compensation for Philadelphia? I think long-term people say we could have got more. We could have got more. Yeah, I agree. And what's kind of crazy, what I was thinking about too, because I, I was recently looking at some mock drafts and stuff for this um, upcoming draft. I mean, there's a possibility that, you know, Anaheim could very well land a, a Macklin Celebrini. Uh, like it's not completely out of the question. Do you see them? going more forward in this upcoming draft with this move? Like, do you think this move changes anything um, in terms of, you know, their plan in the upcoming draft? Do you think they uh, go defenseman? Well, they got plenty of defense. Zellweger, don't forget, is playing down in San Diego right, right now. And I got to think, you know, they're not, they're a young group down in San Diego. They're not very good. They're second to last in their division uh, in the West of the American Hockey League. But they've got some players evolving. They also have – Ian Moore, who's injured right now, playing at Harvard University. I mean, they got a lot of guys uh, on defense coming up. They, they had so much depth, they traded Henry Thrun, uh, right. one of their prospects, up to uh, San Jose. So, again, you look at it, uh, I don't know what they want to do. I think Pat probably wants to take the best available player. I mean, if they fall at one, there's no question they're taking right. Brady. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, Chris, uh, being transparent, I'm going to watch Northeastern and BU tonight uh, over at BU. So part of why I'm going is to go watch Macklin. So, so there. And and I, like, you watch him on TV. I got, I got the opportunity to watch him a couple times this year um, over out of Gannis. And, like, the speed that he has, like the TV doesn't even do it justice. Um, and I've seen a lot of players like that, you know, like I'm not saying he has Connor McDavid speed, but to, to be able to witness it in person, to see how fast yeah. he think for one thinks the game and just his overall speed, he's unbelievable for a 17 year old, what he's doing it in the college hockey ranks. What I try to explain to people is I think Brady Kachuk's one of the best power forwards we've had come out of college hockey in a long time. Brady Kachuk's draft year, he had eight goals. Michael right. Celebrini is going to score 21, 25. He's going to be between 20 and 25, he is. So, you know, that's pretty good. 
Um, and, and Brady's a heck, I don't have to tell you, Brady's a heck of a player. So, you know, I, I look at a lot of different things. The thing about Celebrini to me is um, he's a scorer, yes, but I think he's a far better playmaker. And his peripheral vision at a high rate of speed is phenomenal. It's it's as good as anybody I've seen in the last 15 years. It really is. So and I kind of thought this before the World Juniors. I, there was a little bit of conversation. Could it be Celebrini? Could it be Iserman? Do you think this World Junior Tournament like completely put Celebrini ahead of everyone? There's no question he's going number one overall. Unless he gets hurt or has bad interviews, I think he's going number one. And that's not a knock on Cole Eisenman. Cole Eisenman right. is a really good player. I mean, he's an unbelievable scorer. I'm still surprised he wasn't, even though the Americans won, so you can't really pick on right, them. Right, right. Um, you know, you could pick on Canada because I just finished coming from Orono, Maine, and, and I watched uh, Bradley Nadeau play. And, I, you know, for a team that needed offense, Team Canada, Bradley Nadeau would have been a real good fit for Team Canada. Um, but all that being said, I don't think you can fault the Americans with their roster creation. But Cole Eisenman's a really good player. I mean, there's probably going to be, after Celebrini, it's probably going to rock and roll until probably the 10th pick, where some guys think, oh, he's going to go at two, he'll go at four. You know, some guys think, yeah, I'll go at five, he might go at three. So yeah. I think that's going to be the undulation you'll see in the draft this summer. It's funny you bring up uh, Bradley Ndu. He's another kid that's unbelievable. And I thought he was the biggest snub in the entire – out of any of the rosters. I, I was shocked that he didn't make that team because you mentioned how badly that Canada team needed offense, and he would have been a perfect fit. I mean, I think there's no doubt that he makes the team next year. Um, but what what do you think the rationale was for not you know not choosing a guy like Bradley Ndu? Um Celebrini is a college player from Boston University, and Matthew Wood was a college player or is a college player at a University of Connecticut. The Canadian national program is really heavily indebted, and they deserve to be, to the major junior operators. So there's always a slight bent towards, if it's an even situation, they'll always take the major junior player. Um, there's not a lot of college kids that get an opportunity to play for Team Canada. It's just a reality of the situation. Hey, look, Canada's system has been unbelievably successful, Chris. Right. They've, they've been amazingly successful. For sure. That's that's why I think, you know, Bradley Nadeau probably didn't get a longer opportunity to be part of the team. That makes sense. Um, I, another thing I kind of wanted to bring up to you for sure is uh, this William Nylander extension. Mm -hmm. Another one. He got a lot of money. Um, this you got to wonder where all this money's coming from in Toronto. Um, the ticket buying public, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, what was what was your thought when you saw this this extension? Did you think it would happen this early in the season? Um, and and what do you think this means for some of these other guys like you know Mitch Marner, John Tavares? I mean, you got to you know Austin Matthews is obviously going to be on the team for the you know future. What do you think this means for those guys? Well, it's going to be interesting. For John Tavares, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent in 2025. So he's got another year of contract time. Same with Mitchell Marner. He'll be an unrestricted free agent in 2025. The way I look at it is Nylander's locked up till 2032. Matthews is locked up till 2028, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, Morgan Riley's locked up to 2030. So most of their big core players are locked up long-term. Now Nylander, 2032. So that that's interesting, I think. Um, the, the best prospects they have, Toronto's two best prospects, 
are not in the NHL right now. One is Easton Cowan, and the other one is Fraser Minton. And both of them will be on entry level, so that will kind of help them a little bit. I don't see either one of those guys playing in the American League. I think they'll go right up to the NHL. But the problem for Toronto, it's going to be how do they have enough assets financially within the cap to go out and get what ails them. And what ails them is defense. They're just, they're not good enough or deep enough on defense. So that's going to be the interesting thing for Brad Tree Living, the general manager um, in Toronto. I just, I don't know what he's going to do. I really don't. Right. You mentioned, I mean, that's a lot of money to be putting up for, you know, just a forward group. I mean, it's a, it's a lot, a lot of money. And you mentioned it, their biggest ailment isn't forward. It's defense and uh, you could argue goaltending at this point, but I really liked what I saw from Joseph Wall before he got injured. I agree. Um, We're on the same page. I completely agree. Joseph's done really, really well before he got hurt. Totally for agree, Chris. Sure. For sure. Yeah. It Again, I, it, it it makes me wonder what what they're going to do on defense. I, I really like Easton Cowan and, and um, Mitten as well. Like I think they looked really good um, in that tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know Mitten was the captain of that Canada team. I think he was getting a lot of slack. I you know for as far as a leader goes, um, but I think overall, like I think he's a good player. I think I liked what I saw from him. No, um, those, both those kids are really talented. Cowan's a farmer strong. He's not really big. He's just a strong kid, but he's not really big. Fraser Minton's a kid from uh, the West Coast of Canada. He's going to come in. He'll give him a little bit of skill, a little bit of speed, a little bit of reach, a little bit of size, and he can finish plays off. Uh, he got a little taste this year. I think he realized he wasn't ready for it. The World Junior, even though they didn't win, will help him. Those are two A-level prospects for Toronto, so that's good news for them. Right. And, again, they're they're still on entry level, so that helps with the cap, alleviates a little bit of pressure. But I think at some point there's going to be one odd man out here. Right. And it, I hate to speculate, but you got to think it's going to be Marner. It just, I agree. You have to think. I agree, and I can't even imagine what that return is going to look like. I mean, depending on timing and when they decide to actually pull the trigger, I mean, you got to think it's going to be a pretty return for them. Well, Mitchell's a really good player. Right. Um, (laughs) If you would have traded Patrick Kane in his prime, and that's who Marner's a lot like, uh, what do you think the return would have been for Chicago? Oh, my God, I can't even imagine. So, yeah, it's interesting. So – Again, we I mentioned a little bit earlier in the uh, episode doing the intro that, you know, you're a big world junior guy. You are unbelievably, you know, well-versed in prospects and everything, and that's one of my favorite things to study and talk about. Um, what what were your some of your takeaways of this uh, world junior tournament as a whole? Um, you know, players that stood out to you, um, teams that stood out to you. Um, and I, I also wanted to talk about some of these guys that, you know, are 2024 draft eligible that some people might not know a lot about that really stood out to you. So first of all, I'm going to say this was one of the most dangerous world juniors I've ever seen. And by dangerous, I don't mean dangerous on the ice. This is one of those danger areas for scouts. Because if you look at some of the teams that were there, the Latvians weren't particularly good. The Germans weren't particularly good. The Swiss weren't particularly good. And the Norwegians weren't particularly good. So you had four teams where teams are running up the numbers against them. So players were getting inflated numbers, number one. That's that's a really important thing for scouts to pay attention to. The second thing is 
This was not a super elite team from Finland. It was a competitive team, hardworking team. They weren't super elite like they usually are, and that speaks to them losing the bronze medal because I can tell you right now, they are the kings of the bronze medal game. The numbers will say that. And I've seen it over the course of my career. And then the other thing is no Russian participation. So it changes the dynamic of the tournament significantly, Chris. Right. It really does. So I thought this was a dangerous world junior, a junior tournament from a scouting perspective. That's what I thought. Now, in terms of uh, teams that impressed me, I was really impressed by Sweden. Most of the tournament, they were really, really good, not just offensively, defensively, structurally, coaching-wise. They played an entertaining style, still very responsible defensively. They understood how to defend on big ice. I think their first four games, they didn't give up a goal. I mean, it was phenomenal what they were doing. So they impressed me. The Americans impressed me the entire tournament. Uh, quick strike offensive capability. The Boston College line, obviously, Ryan Leonard and Perot and Will Smith, that line was outstanding for the Americans. Uh, the way Lane Hudson pushed the pace of the game from the back end, I thought was great. The depth and goal with Augustine and Fowler, I thought was phenomenal for the Americans. So I thought the Americans were a great story. The player that probably impressed me the most that most people don't know is Yuri Kulich uh, of the Czech Republic, yeah. or Chechia, they call it now. Right. Um, you know, I go back to going over there watching Yarmir Yager play when it's called Czechoslovakia. So, it's, <laughs> you know, keep changing the names. Um, and I would just say he he's a player that's playing in the American League right now, and I can't think there's too much more for him to prove in the American League. He really, really, really impressed me a lot. Um, Dvorsky, the St. Louis pick, Dalibor Dvorsky, really impressed me a ton. Uh, he's not that far from being NHL ready. So there, there are some other players in the tournament um, where you say pretty good, pretty good. You mentioned, you know, you mentioned Yuri Kulich. It's funny you say that because I got I got the opportunity to watch him at the Prospect Challenge in Buffalo. Yeah. And the three that stood out as far as Buffalo prospects were Yuri Kulich for sure, Zach Benson, who made the team, and then Matt Savoy as well. Who this what Buffalo has coming up is a very special group, and they've already taken care of, you know, their decor as far as Owen Power and Rasmus Dahlin. I mean, this is going to be a really dangerous group um, here going forward. Do you think there's any chance that um, both Savoy and Kulich get called up this season? Uh, well, I could see Kulik for sure. I don't know about Savoy because he's coming off an injury, I think, from the World Junior, right? He was he was he was injured. Yeah, he he got injured, but we'll Kulik for sure, he's ripping it up down there. Yeah, but he, here's the thing with Buffalo, and I think they're going to figure this out as a coaching staff and as a managerial team. They have a lot of the same players. I mean, they got excessive skill. They have an unbelievable array of skill. They really right. do. They have to identify deeper in the lineup how they can maintain and sustain leads when they're on the road in particular. And you don't do that with slicksters. You do that with guys that are tough. Right. And I think they've got a, there's a fine line they're going to have to figure out in Buffalo uh, in terms of team building exercise. And I think they understand that now. Um, just listening to some of the quotes you hear from uh, Donnie Granado from time to time, their coach. So I think they're starting to understand that. So I, I don't know if all those young players will be there when it's all said and done, but they've done a nice job uh, re really identifying talent and skill in Buffalo for sure. Yeah, the, you exactly right. Like the fact that they've been able to hit on a lot of these, you know, these picks. I mean, Zach Benson, uh, the latest one, right, like fell yeah. to 13th overall. I mean, he's looking like a top five pick at this point. 
And, you know, it's very early to tell, but, you know, he's looked very, very good. I agree. Uh, Benson's skill level is is excessive, obviously. You wish he was a little bit bigger, but he's going to be surrounded by some – Tate Thompson's not a small guy. Right. They <laughs> got uh, So getting Jack Quinn back really helped them too this year. You see when Jack's been able to play in games, um, he's, he's shooting the puck, I believe. That's his thing. He's a gunner. He's a shooter. Um, J.J. Paterka is another one of those guys. So they, they've got just a steady array of talent there in Buffalo, no question. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I kind of want to get into like you personally, you know, your career, um, how you started out. Um, I was I was reading your bio. I knew you were a coach at Babson. Um, my sister went to Babson. Unbelievable campus, beautiful school. Um, can you talk to us about how you got started, how you landed that job and, and you know, how you landed in the game of hockey starting out? Um, well, I was a kid that grew up in Montreal. I was a huge Montreal Canadiens fan. Um, I played a lot of sports growing up, football, hockey, and baseball in particular. Um, I left Montreal when I was 15, turning 16, to go to a, a high school in New Jersey called Bergen Catholic High School. It's a big-time football program, big-time sports school, very good academic school. Um, I just ended up being the starting quarterback of the football team there. Uh, you know, played on the hockey team there. We won, you know, championship there in hockey. We played in the state uh, final two years in a row in football. We didn't win, but we played the same team two years in a row. It was unbelievable how competitive it was. Uh, I went to Hobart College for four years. I played football, hockey, and baseball there. I graduated in four years with a degree in English. Uh, after the, my senior year of hockey, I was contacted by a team in Europe. I signed with them. I played for a year. And then uh, halfway through my season in Europe, I was contacted by the New Jersey Devils. I signed with them as a player, um, came back from Europe, and uh, at the end of training camp, I uh, got sent to the minors, and I didn't want to do that. So I was thinking about going back to Europe, Chris, believe it or not. And, really? Uh, instead, I, I got offered a coaching job, and the coaching job is a pretty cool story. My first coaching job, uh, I paid $500 for the year. I'm not kidding you. He gave me uh, an apartment, a meal ticket at the cafeteria, a car to go recruiting, a card, um, a charge card, so I could put gas in it, um, and then I would work as a substitute school teacher at the Geneva High School in Geneva, New York, and uh, I worked on Sundays at a friend of mine's bar called Ronnie Cedar Inn, where I'd make a hundred dollars every Sunday, and all the hamburgers I could eat. So it was really <laughs> good. It was a good deal, um, and so that's how I started. And then after one year of that, I went to Babson. I was there for three years. And I ran tons of hockey schools and I had an amazing relationship with uh, Steve Sterling, who was the athletic director and head coach, and also Dick Flood, who ran his camp called the Europa Cup. And we put so many good players through that for so many years. And then after three years there, uh, I went to St. Lawrence University, where I had an unbelievable opportunity to work with one of the greatest gentlemen in college hockey history, Joe Marsh. Yeah. And we won a ton there. I think we produced 11 players that played in the NHL, maybe 12. Uh, but it was great. And after my second year, I got approached by the Pittsburgh Penguins to go work with Scotty Bowman and Craig Patrick and Bob Johnson. So it broke my heart to leave Joe Marsh and St. Lawrence. But that's kind of how everything got going for me. What You mentioned a couple of legends there. Like what was, you know, first to start off Scotty Bowman to, you know, to get to work for a guy like Scotty, like, what were your biggest takeaways like 
I, I can't imagine. Like, there must be so much that you learn from him. Um, but it's every day. Well, one of the best lessons I ever got, I'll never forget the first draft in 1990. We were on the football field floor in uh, Vancouver. There were 50,000 people in the stadium that day for the NHL draft. It's the largest attended draft in uh, draft history. And uh, Badger Bob Johnson grabs me and he says, here's the one key for you because you're young and you're aggressive. I go, what's that? Learn something new every day. Keep your ears open. And I took him at his word. And I really try to live my life like that every day. Try to learn something new every day. Badger was an amazing man. I'm so grateful for the time I had to work with him and win with him. And uh, I learned so much from him, so much from Craig Patrick, so much from Scotty Bowman. Scotty and I were roommates. I don't know if you're aware of that, but we were roommates. No way. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, we were roommates. And um, his wife had the best line of all. I don't know. We're in the middle of a pretty good run in Pittsburgh. She came down from Buffalo and uh, she looked at me. And she goes, how's it going? I said, oh, it's going great. She goes, what do you guys do? I said, well, we watch hockey at the rink. We coach, get on the plane, come back, eat. You know, that's what we do. She goes, better you than me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you can't, you can't beat that lifestyle. I mean, that's, that's all the essentials. That's awesome. Um, you know, you have ext extensive, um, you know, what am I trying to say? Like experience, sorry. So you have a ton of experience as far as scouting, as far as, you know, evaluating players. Um, for someone, I mean, a lot of us just watch the game, right? We don't really pay attention to, we're just kind of watching. When you're in evaluating players, um, what are your biggest things that you look for in a player? I mean, I guess it depends all on what that specific team needs. But when you're evaluating a player, what types of things do you look for in that player? The first thing is character. Second thing is coachability. Third thing is how tough they are. Those three things matter a lot. And people say, well, how do you identify character? Uh, a guy that's prepared to turn the other cheek, a guy that plays disciplined, a guy that will sacrifice his body for the well-being of the team, uh, a player that will move the puck rather than try to be selfish. Character comes in so many different ways, and every single player their character be, can be quantified in a different way. Coachability matters a ton, especially in the NHL, because most of the players are pretty similar. So if you get players that don't listen and can't be coached, you can't really make an impact on their careers. Um, and then toughness matters. This is a hard game played by really tough people with no out-of-bounds. Everybody goes fast. They all have a stick in their hand. It's a weapon. And so if you're not tough, you're going to have a hard problem playing for a long time. There are other subtle things. Like I like players that can skate. I like big players. Um, I like players that know how to pass the puck. Uh, I like guys that play as teammates. I, I like guys that aren't individuals. I like guys that really understand how to make players around them better. I look for forwards. I look for line drivers, guys that make the line better. For defensemen, I look for guys that understand their responsibility. If you're supposed to be a shutdown guy, be a shutdown guy. If you're supposed to be a puck mover, be a puck mover. You know, I'll, I'll never forget watching the New Jersey Devils in the 90s actually coaching against them. You know, they had Scott Stevens and Ken Danico and Sean Chambers, three huge guys that could shut you down and pile drive you right through the boards. Then on the other side, they had a guy by the name of Scott Niedermeyer, and you just gave him the puck, and he was a one-man breakout. Right. You know, it was almost impossible. It was kind of like the Rangers. We played them in the 92 second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. 
and they had Jeff Bukaboom on the right side and Brian Leach on the left side. And all Bukaboom did was block for Leach. Right. So Leach would get the puck, and it was right up and out of the zone. So yep. never put the puck on Leach's side. Put it on Bukaboom's side. <laughs> you know, just things like that. So um, I, I look for a lot of different things. But those three things at the beginning, you know, I think character, coachability, and toughness really matter. So to go along with that, have there ever been any players that you kind of – not? that people didn't necessarily agree with you that you evaluated that ended up being phenomenal players that some people were just like, eh, like we don't really see it. And then they ended up being very good. And then I got a couple of them. Uh, one would be Ian Moran, who we took in Pittsburgh. I think we took him in the sixth or the seventh round of the ninth yep. draft. He was at Belmont Hill. I'd had him on the ice as a kid in camp. I'd watched him play a ton at Belmont Hill. Um, I was really intrigued by how smart he was and how passionate he was about the game. He ended up playing 11 years of pro, right. 11 years. I was a sixth or seventh round pick when it was a 12 round draft. I mean, that, that's a heck of a career. Um, and then Marcus Naslin, we took Marcus in Pittsburgh with the in 91, um, just after Kovalev and Marcus had just an amazing career, not so much in Pittsburgh because they traded him. After Scotty went to Detroit, I went to Hartford, and Barry Smith went to uh, Detroit. He didn't have anybody else in the organization really stepping up for him, so they traded Marcus uh, for Alex Stoyanov, and that ended up being one of the worst deals in NHL history. Yeah, you know, Great for Vancouver, bad for Pittsburgh, but a lot of people didn't think Marcus was ever really going to turn out, and he obviously did. Um and the reason why they didn't think he'd turn out is Peter Forsberg was a centerman, and Peter was so darn good. Right. <laughs> Mar Marcus was pretty darn good too. Um, I don't know. Hard to say about about you know you take so many players in the middle rounds and end up playing three to five years or six years, and you say, man, that kid did so well. So th there'd be a large number of those, but I would say Ian Moran really stood out. I remember when we drafted him. Um, one of the scouts from another team came up to me and says, and I was like, in scouting parlance, that means he's small. He's never going to play. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, we'll see. And he <laughs> did for 11 years. So it was good. Yeah. You ended up being definitely right about that one. He's a, he's an awesome well, guy. Staff, it wasn't just me. It was our whole staff. But uh, right. that's I, I just remember, you know, a couple guys looking over our table when we took him. They're like, oh, he's too small. It worked out that's awesome. Okay. Uh, you know, you're a two two-time Stanley Cup champion with Pittsburgh, obviously. Um, some absolute legends on that team. What what was your time like? Um, you know, those years with those two cups playing with or you know, coaching those legends and um what was your time like in Pittsburgh? Surreal. Um grateful for every single day I spent in that organization. Um, so appreciative to Mr. Patrick and the, the late Bob Johnson, to Scotty Bowman for hiring a 29, 28 turning 29 year old kid. Um, just really, really grateful. Uh, Mary Lemieux, Brian Trache, Ronnie Francis later on, Kevin Stevens, Mark Recchi, Rick Tockett, uh, Alfie Samuelson, Shell Samuelson, Joey Mullen. I can go down the line, Yarmer Yager. Um, Troy Loney, Phil Bork, so many good people, all just so grateful for having gotten to know them and to work with them. For a lot of those players, they were so good. You know, you, half of those guys are Hall of Famers. You don't really have to coach those guys, you have to maintain them. It's really important, you know, right. never take away the creativity of a great player. So, Mario, you everybody said, What's it like to coach Mario? I always tell people, I never coached Mario, I maintained him. Right. 
there's a big difference. You know, I'll tell you a quick story, Chris, about Mario. It talks about this is about the character aspect of a player that a fan would never see. Uh, we were taking a commercial flight to Vail, Colorado for training camp. Half the team was playing an exhibition game in New York, and I took the other half with me to Vail. Mario happened to be the half that came with me to Vail. Um, we were, it was a late flight. I think we were about two hours late, an hour and 45 minutes, whatever. And uh, there were no cell phones then. So I called the office and I said, we're going to be late for our ice time up in Vail. And uh, Craig Patrick, the general manager, says, doesn't matter. Get on the ice. We, we rented the ice all night. We owned the rink for the rest of the week. Put the guys on the ice. So I went to Mario knowing that probably wasn't going to be a popular decision. <laughs> and uh, Mario said to me, we'll practice as long as we eat. So what do you mean? He goes, well, just pull over somewhere. So we pull over at some fast food place. I don't know which one it was. There's so many McDonald's, Wendy's, I don't know, Burger King. I have no idea. We pulled over. We guys ate their hamburgers on the bus or whatever. We get up to Vail, let them check in the hotel. We go right to the rink. If you ask any player that was there, Paul Coffey, Mark Recchi, uh, Yarmir Yager, ask anybody that was at that practice that day, they will tell you. They never saw Mary Lemieux do the things that he did in that practice before, and they never saw him do it again. He put on a show that was crazy, crazy, and it set the tone for the entire training camp, Chris. It, Unbelievable. It was, and that was the character that I was alluding to. That was a great display of leadership and character. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. He just went out there and did it, and all the other guys had to follow. It was phenomenal to watch. Really, that's was. that's unreal. Yeah, he. I mean. Obviously, I, I didn't get to grow up and watch him, but even just being able to go back and watch some of his highlights and the things that he was able to do on the ice was just unbelievable. I mean, that's why he's considered one of the greats. Um, if you get a chance, Chris, go watch the goal shorthanded against Raymond Bork in 1992 Eastern Conference Final. Uh, Mario walks Raymond. It's unbelievable. And then go watch him um, in Pittsburgh in 91, the final against Minnesota. Uh, he goes through, I think it's Brian Glenn and Sean Chambers. I could be wrong, but I think it's those two guys in defense. It's just, it's, and then it's uh, Donnie, or uh, yeah, John Casey and goal, John Casey and goal. It's just unbelievable. Some of the stuff you see him do, you're like, he, it's like playing a video game. It, right. He's just so good. It's ridiculous. My, you know, my dad has told me, you know, uh, you know, we're both huge hockey fans and whatever, but he's told me that two of the best players that he's ever seen was Mario Lemieux in the in the early '90s? He was able to see him a few times, and as well as Paul Correa, during his time at Maine, he got the opportunity to go watch the Black Bears and you know watch him. And he said, "The video that you see now doesn't even do it justice of how fast he was." I remember uh, I was coaching the Hartford Whalers, and Brian Burke was our general manager. And Brian said to me, um, "We're playing in Boston on Saturday night, and they checked the schedule." And Maine is playing at Boston College. Want to go to the game? I said, absolutely. So the afternoon before the game, Brian and I went to the game to watch Paul Correa play against BC. And you're 100% right, Chris. Uh, his acceleration with and without the puck was phenomenal. Uh, the ability to make the players around him better was off the charts. And you could just see he had a flair for the dramatic. Not an overly large guy, but man, oh, man, was he good. He was really good. Right. And what a career he had. What an amazing NHL career Paul had. Phenomenal. 
Yeah, for sure. You you know, and you just mentioned, um, you know, Hartford, uh, you know, Hartford Whalers in Connecticut, um, not too far from where we're at, where my dad works. Um, can you talk to us about, you know, your your time in Hartford and what what it was like being a part of that organization? Um, you know, I, there have been talks about, you know, another expansion team possibly coming into the league um, at some point in the future. Um, do you think Hartford could possibly land a team again? Is there, or do you think their time has kind of passed? Well, I don't think any time's ever passed. I'd like to see Hartford and Quebec. I mean, Winnipeg got a second chance to get a team. Right. You know, I think the market in Hartford's just as vibrant as the market in Winnipeg. In fact, maybe more so. Right. Um, I think Quebec deserves another opportunity to have a team. We'll see whether they get one or not. So I don't think you can ever shut the door on anybody. Um, I enjoyed my time in Hartford. Uh, I thought we were going to be able to really turn the corner. Um, we weren't able to do that. There was an ownership change. I didn't last as long as I wanted to there because of the ownership change, which I totally understand. Um, but I, I really enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed living there. I uh, made a lot of friends there. Uh, it was the best airport for an NHL team. You could just fall <laughs> out of bed and get right to Bradley Field. Right. Easy. Um, so, no, I, I don't know. I just. I there's one of those where our team wasn't ready to win. And what happened was it was really tough. Brian Burke was our general manager. He hired all of us. He had put together a really solid plan, Chris. And then after nine months, Gary Bettman approached him and asked him to come work at the league. So we lost our general manager after nine months. And that changed the whole flow uh, of what we were trying to accomplish. And if you look at it, um, after we all got let go, it was another five years before they actually played a playoff game. So it wasn't easy. You know, the rebuild was well on its way after year one, and then it kind of got dismantled because Brian uh, was approached by the league to go work there. Right. Uh, you, you know, you had, from where I remember you, right, and, and just seeing you on the TV every, I watch as much hockey as I can, your time at TSN, you know, between the glass. Um, what, what would you say your most memorable game or is there a most memorable moment you've had, um, working between the glass that something that just pops out in your mind is something like you'll never forget. The Crosby goal in 2010 at the Olympics, he was yelling, Iggy, Iggy, Iggy. I'm telling you, and you could hear it. It was so amazing. And the crowd was just frantic. It was crazy. But I could hear it at ice level, and uh, so that was one moment for sure. Patrick's game, uh, Patrick Kane's game-winning goal against Philadelphia uh, in 2010 was pretty amazing. Um, the Boston Bruins Stanley Cup victory in 2011 in Vancouver, that series was unbelievable. The coast-to-coast -coast travel, seven games, the yeah. roller coaster ride that was that series. Uh, and then being on the ice interviewing one of my old players, Mark Recchi, that was his last game. Um, and all the travel we had done together over time, whether it was skating together or, or traveling together, and to see him go out on top was amazing and very emotional. Uh, 2007, Anaheim beating Ottawa. Uh, at the end of the game, my interview with Timu Solani, uh, he broke down. I knew Timu for so long, and uh, I almost broke down because of it. I will never forget that. Um, that was a fantastic uh, final for Anaheim. It really helped change the culture of hockey in California in 07. And then that helped build up for the great Kings teams that we saw, uh, you know, from 2011 to about 2016 or 17. So 
Lots of good stuff. Lots of really good memories. No yeah. bad ones. No bad ones. Right. And like all those moments that you mentioned, like I remember growing up watching all those things, especially like the Bruins Stanley Cup being in mass, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, remembering how much of a bloodbath that that series was and just how crazy <laughs> it was. Um, you know, and so most recently um, you worked uh, for the Ottawa Senators um, as I want to get I want to make sure I get your the uh, title correct. Um, hold on. Anyways, you worked for the Ottawa Senators, right? Yeah. And senior, I, senior vice president. Yeah, I I'm, I had it up, and then it closed out when I was trying to start the recording. Sorry about that. Um, what what was your time like in Ottawa? Um, obviously they were going through a little bit of a rebuild at that time. Um, what what was your time like there? Um, and then my biggest question to you would be. Would you ever um, consider, you know, another leadership role like that, um, you know, a GM role um, or, or something similar to what you had in Ottawa? My time in Ottawa was great, number one. Number two, um, it's painful to think about because we were well on our way to getting things really cleaned up there. Uh, and then Mr. Melnick, the person that hired me, passed away. He was the owner of the team. Right. Uh, and after Mr. Melnick passed away, it wasn't too long afterwards that I was relieved of my duties. Um, and that was painful just because I cared so much about what we were doing there. Uh, had amazing relationships internally with all the staff members, the scouting staff, the, the training staff, the coaching staff. Some of the best memories I have in hockey, going down and working with our coaches in the American Hockey League and seeing them make the playoffs for the first time in five years in Belleville was great. Um, such good people. So I have really fond memories. Uh, watching a young Tim Stutzler play, watching a young Josh Norris play, watching a young Shane Pinto play. Um, you know, just really, really good memories. Uh, so, no, nothing bad. No, nothing bad. The only bad was when I was told that I wasn't going to be working there anymore. You know, a lot of obviously was good to the owner passing away. Yeah, it's, it's too bad. I mean, you, like I said, you're one of the most gifted hockey minds too. You know, like it's it's unbelievable. Your analysis on, you know, player development, everything is unbelievable, second to none. Um, Pierre, I, I want to thank you so much for, you know, taking time out of your day to uh, to join this podcast. It's, it's a very new podcast, so I, I literally never thought I'd have the opportunity to get to talk to you ever. Um, and it's, you know, one of the biggest honors of my life being able to, uh, you know, talk to you and talk hockey. Well, I, I'm going to thank you, Chris. I keep selling the game, keep growing the game. It's my honor. It's my pleasure to be with you. And I love the entrepreneurial spirit that you have. And I love the fact you want to help grow the game. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we started our podcast, Jimmy Murphy and I, we just want to tell good stories about the game, right. about the people in the game, whether it's on the women's side, the men's side, high school, prep school, junior, major, junior, doesn't matter. I think it's really important. I learned this from the late great Herb Brooks uh, right after the 02 Olympics. We were sitting at an establishment in Salt, Salt Lake City, Utah. And he said, you have a responsibility to help grow the game and use it. And I said, you know what, Coach, I will. I'll do it as best I can. So I, I really commend you for what you're doing, Chris. Thank you for having me on. It means a lot. Yes, sir. Yeah, it, I, I owe everything to the game of hockey, you know, because I – I came home from, you know, being in the military. I got medically retired and I just was, you know, really down in the dumps with everything and um, just really struggling being home. And, and hockey is what kind of brought me back. So I honestly, I owe everything to the game of hockey. 
Um, it's, it's what got me back to, you know, happiness. Um, so again, this is one of those full circle moments for me where, you know, being able to talk to, you know, a childhood hero, right. And just unbelievable. I can't thank you enough. Are you animal, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for having me on. It means a lot. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. So that, that was Pierre Maguire, um, for episode 29, unbelievable episode. Um, can't thank him enough for being on. Um, you can catch this episode on Apple po uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, as well as our YouTube um, at Drop the Mets Hockey. Um, take care, guys, and be safe out there.